Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is a scene in Pilgrim's Progress in which there is a man in a room which is full of straw and all kinds of dirt and junk and garbage on the floor, and he's raking through it, picking out twigs and little useless baubles and delighting in them. And above him, there is someone holding out a golden crown. But he doesn't see it because he's fixated. He's looking down at all the garbage which he is raking through. And that scene in Pilgrim's Progress, which if you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress, you really should. Every Christian should read it. It's a wonderful, wonderful allegory of the Christian life. But that scene in in Pilgrim's Progress is a reminder of what the Scriptures teach about people who are caught in their sin, slaves of sin. Paul writes about them in Romans chapter 3 in this way. He says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Paul is saying, these kind of people make me cry. Literally, when I see what they're doing. Because they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ and their end is destruction and their God is the belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Well, that's a picture of Esau. And every sinner that is in the grip of sin, driven by base appetites, driven by the desires of the flesh, the scripture says, we read it in Hebrews chapter 12, he sold his birthright for a single meal. And that's how our text ends. Thus, Esau despised his birthright. Now, the whole chapter, you may be wondering why I took the whole chapter as the text. The whole chapter has to do with birthright and with inheritance. So we're going to go quickly through the chapter. I'm not going to go verse by verse, as I often do, but we'll go it in uh, section by section. It will still help to have your Bible open to follow what we're doing. Look there in verse 1. Abraham took another wife. He was a hundred years old when, when Isaac was born, and now he has six more children with Keturah. So the Lord in his old age gave him vigor and fertility. That blessing of renewed vigor was not just for Isaac, but it continued past the death of, of Sarah as well. But these are children that are in a different category than Isaac and even than Ishmael. See what he does with them in verse 6. He gives to the sons of his concubines gifts and sends them away eastward into the east country. And notice the repetition there of the word east. And you remember that throughout Genesis, the, the, the idea is that when you go east, you go away from the presence of the Lord. You're going away from God. And so even though these are physical descendants of Abraham they do not have a portion in the spiritual inheritance that uh, is for the child of the promise, which is for Isaac. There's a difference between the son of the promise and the sons of the flesh. And so we see right here, as we often see throughout the scriptures, that even in the Old Testament church, it was not based merely on physical descent. Sometimes people will say that to you, well, in the Old Testament, all you had to do was be born in God's people, and that was enough. No, it never was enough. It's not as though the Old Testament church is based on physical descent and the New Testament on spiritual. 
Even in the Old Testament, it was not enough to be of a certain ethnicity, to be born in a certain family. But the line of the promise is the line of those who receive God's promises and embrace those promises in faith. The line of the promise goes for Abraham and Sarah. Now you see there in verse 1 that Keturah is called a wife. Then you see there in verse 6 that her, her sons are called sons of a concubine. And that's because a concubine is a special kind of wife. A concubine is a wife that shares the bed with the husband, but does not share in the inheritance. That's the difference. And this was it's strange to us. We don't have that kind of a situation. At least we shouldn't. But back then, that was how things were set up. If you were the son of a concubine, you knew that you had no participation in the birthright, in the inheritance. He takes care of them. He gives them gifts. But they cannot be inheritors of the birthright. Now, they can even be received into the people of God if they come with faith and repentance. And you think, you see there that Midian, for instance, is one of the children. And you remember that later on, Moses marries Zipporah. Zipporah is a Midianite, and she is brought back into God's people. So it's not as though these people are excluded forever. They can come through faith and repentance. They can be joined to God's people. But the line of the promise goes through Isaac. And so, verse 5, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. What about Ishmael? Well, Ishmael's different. Yes, Hagar is not Sarah, but technically Ishmael is Sarah's son through her servant Hagar. That's the way it works. So Hagar is not just a concubine, but she being the servant of Sarah, her son, the idea was that her son would be born to inherit the birthright. And initially that was the case. He was the firstborn son and he had the birthright. But you remember what happened at, at the party, at the birthday party for Isaac, when it ended up in Ishmael being excommunicated from the people of God because he mocked the holy things of God and he mocked the child of the promise. Well, he was excommunicated. He lost his birthright. But yet he has a different status than those children of Keturah. And we see that in verse 9. See verse 9 there? Who's at the, the, the burial service of Abraham? Not the sons of Keturah. They're gone, but Isaac and Ishmael are there. So Ishmael is in a different category than the sons of the, other, of the concubines. But Isaac gets the birthright. Isaac gets the blessing. Look at verse 11. God blessed Isaac, his son. And Isaac gets everything. The birthright includes a whole pile of wonderful things. It includes the double portion of the inheritance if there is more than one legitimate heir. In this case, Isaac's the only heir, so he gets everything. It involves kingly authority. Remember that Abraham was a small prince. The community over which he ruled was in the thousands of people. And so Isaac inherits kingly authority. He inherits, the firstborn would inherit a priestly role. We don't have the temple. We don't have the tabernacle. We don't have the Levites. And so the leader of worship is the oldest son of the family. Until the golden calf incident many years later, when God changes it so that the Levites are the ones who minister in worship. Until then, it was the eldest son who was the priest in each family. So he gets kingship. He gets 
the priesthood, and he gets a prophetic role. It was the firstborn, the one who had the birthright, who would be the one who would receive the oracles and revelations and visions from God. And then the one who had the birthright would also get the incredible privilege of being a father of the Messiah. He would be in that line, that holy line, which stretches from Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman going all the way to the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's an incredibly glorious privilege to have the birthright. And so Isaac settles at the place called Be'er Laha Roy, the well of the living one who sees me. And you remember why it was called that, right? You remember, children, that Hagar and Ishmael were in the desert and they ran out of water and she thought he was going to die and she cried out to God and God saw her. And he, he heard the cry of the child and he, he showed her some water. He showed her this very well where Isaac ends up pitching his tent. Well, that's significant. Ishmael experienced, Ishmael experienced the care and the providence and the love of God. See there in verse 11, Isaac settled at Be'er Laharoi. Isaac settled at the place where Ishmael had come to know God. That God is kind and loving and gracious. That God saves. But Ishmael has turned his back on that truth. It is Isaac who embraces the truth of the gospel and lives by it. And that's the point. That's the point of verses 12 through to 18 when we get the Toledot, the generations of Ishmael. The point is this, is that this is just a list of names. That's it. That's all you get when you turn your back on God. You get the things of this earth. And so you read there, 12 through to 18, you read there that Ishmael gets these children and he gets these descendants. He gets to be 12 princes according to their tribes. So he gets to be a great nation with 12 mighty princes as God promised to Abraham. So Ishmael gets earthly power and wealth and glory, but it's all without God. It's all godless. And so, as you read through Genesis and you read the Toledot, the generations of, which apply to people who turn away from God, those are always cut short. All it is is a list of names. Nothing else, because there's nothing else to see here. There's no redemptive history. There's no story of, of knowing God and His love and His grace and having fellowship with Him and, and seeing His promises worked out, because they've, they've gone into a dead end. They've turned away from the one, the living one, who sees us. And so that's what verses 12 to 18 remind us of. Turn away from God, your life is a dead end. And then we get to verse 19, and here we have again another Toledot. You remember that Genesis is divided into 10 sections, which, is, which are all start with the Hebrew word toledot, which means generations. And so here in verse 19, we have the eighth one of the 10. These are the generations of Isaac, Abram's son. And this toledot, this section, will go right through to chapter 35. And what it's going to describe is the consequences, the developments that proceed from Isaac and from his life. And so we see 
verse 21, that after Isaac has married at 40 years old, he prays to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. Why does God do that? Abraham had to wait for so long for the child of the promise. Now here comes the child of the promise, and when he gets married, no children come. God had said, I'm going to make you a great nation. Why does God make things go so slow? Because God wants to show us that this isn't normal, that this isn't natural, that this isn't just because things are going the way of all the earth. He likes to bring us to the point where we realize that unless God does something miraculous, nothing's going to happen. And so he does it to show his glory and his power. And so, as he often does, to his children. He drives Isaac to prayer. Now, when we read this, it seems pretty quick, right? You look at verse 21. He prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, period, and the Lord granted his prayer. That's pretty quick. Sounds like just you want some light, you turn on the light switch, and there's the light. But we know that that's not true because look at verse 26. How old was Isaac when the children were born. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. So how long did Isaac pray? Well, he prayed for 20 years. For 20 years. He prayed. The child of promise is a man of prayer. And he didn't stop praying because he didn't stop believing in the promise. And that's instructive for us, brother and sister. Very instructive. And then comes the answer to the prayer. And with that answer comes pain. Look at verse 22. Finally, the, there's the, the pregnancy. But there's something strange and wrong. Because Rebecca feels this struggle within her. What's going on? And we see that. But the answer that God gives us to prayer isn't always an easy answer. Sometimes it comes through great struggle or through great affliction. We don't get to choose. God gives us what we need in the way that we need it. And we see in that struggle within Rebecca's womb a kind of a picture of the struggle between faith and unbelief in the world, in the church, in our own hearts. And then we also see in the prophecy that the Lord gives her. That thing that so often happens in Scripture, that the first shall be last. God likes to do that. He likes to take the, the most important, the greatest, the most amazing, the first, the one that we all look up to, and God says, no, put that down. The thing you didn't even notice, I will put that up. God is always teaching us in these things that he does not look upon the external appearance but his grace is sovereign, that he looks upon the heart. Esau is a man's man. He's a hunter. He goes out and kills animals and drags them back and skins them. And, and he pre prepares these delicious meals. And there's Jacob. He's sitting at home. He's a quieter kind of person, more at home. There's a big difference between these two men. But the fact that Jacob is more at home does not mean that he is a wimp, that he's not a man. He knows how to work hard. He works for 14 years to get his wives. Jacob is no effete 
sickly, wimpy kind of person. He, he is a real man. He wrestles with God himself and doesn't give up later on at Penuel. So Jacob is a man, but he's a man in a different way than Esau is. And that's okay. The scripture doesn't teach us that there's just one way to be a man or one way to be a woman. There are lots of different types of men and lots of different types of women. And that's good to remember. And so God has ordained the covenant line of the promise through Jacob. That was the promise. That the older shall serve the younger. But that didn't mean to say that Jacob had to help God. That mean, that's not an excuse for Jacob's greed when Esau comes hungry and Jacob takes advantage of that opportunity to exploit Esau's need. That's not an excuse. You remember what happened with Abraham and, and Sarah when they tried to make God's promises come true and they tried to use Hagar to get a child, the child of the promise. It didn't work. It brought a lot of grief. And this action of Jacob brings a lot of grief into his life and the life of his family as well. We'll see that in the coming weeks. There's also no excuse, just because God said the older will serve the younger, that's no excuse for Esau despising his birthright. Both Jacob and Esau sin in the last part of our chapter. But God's sovereign purpose prevails. Because even when we sin, that can't shake God's eternal degrees, it can't turn them aside, God will bring to pass what he has ordained. And that's what happens at the end of this chapter. And what do we learn when we look at this last bit of the chapter? Well, Esau despised his birthright. God held out a crown to him that he would be a prophet and a priest and a king, that he would receive glory and blessing and honor, that he would be part of the work of God to bring about the coming of the Christ, the Savior of the world. It was a glorious crown that God held out to Esau, and Esau didn't even look up. He just looked down at the things of this earth, and he said, nah, I'm hungry. I want to eat something. He couldn't see past the moment. He couldn't see past his base animal appetites. And boy, when we read what he did, we can get infuriated. What are you doing, Esau? What are you thinking? Brother and sister, let's not be too quick to judge Esau. How often do we not do the same? God declares that we are heirs of the kingdom of God, heirs according to the hope of eternal life, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ who will be glorified with Christ. God says that we will reign with Christ. That we are born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading that is kept in heaven for us. God holds out this crown of the kingdom of life, of holiness, of glory, of dominion that we will judge the angels. That we will rule the new heavens and the new earth with Christ himself. Understand that, brother and sister. The gospel is not that we get to sneak into heaven through the back door and kind of say, wow, I'm kind of glad that I got let in here and kind of watch things from a distance. No, the gospel is that we will sit on thrones to rule, sharing in the glory of the King of Kings who died 
to make us his. That is your birthright. Because it is Christ's birthright and it is yours in him. And so we have this glorious crown offered to us in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we refuse to look up, when we fix our eyes on the things of this world, when we give way to our base appetites, to our carnal desires, we despise our birthright. When we veg out in front of the TV or doom scroll on our phones because we're too lazy to do our devotions, when we've got lots of energy for sports and entertainment and earthly pleasures, but suddenly when there's a Bible study or worship, we're really tired. When we pour energy and resources into making our lives pleasurable and comfortable in this world, but we dismiss and neglect and despise the things that prepare us for the next. Brother, sister, and I'm preaching to myself here too, are you raking in the muck? Are you rummaging through that garbage and the dirt and the, and the, the baubles of this world? Look up and see the crown that is offered to you. Now Jacob, Jacob thought he had to be smart and clever and cunning, that he had to orchestrate things, that he had to take advantage of other people's weakness and, and need in order to get the promises that God made to him. But the Bible teaches us that it is through faith and patience that we inherit the promise. It is through faith and patience that we inherit the promises. So what does the Bible tell us to do? Wait on the Lord. When we try to make his promises come true through our own effort, it leads to pain. Just wait on the Lord. Now today, the King of Kings, our older brother, calls us to the table. Are you sick of earthly things? Are you hungry for heavenly things? Jesus invites you to eat. And to eat this food, you don't have to sell your birthright. But you can eat this food to celebrate the birthright that is yours. To celebrate that he is Lord of all. To celebrate that all things are yours and you are Christ's. To celebrate that our older brother has come into his kingdom and all authority on heaven and earth belong to him. All glory, power, honor, all knowledge and wisdom and holiness and righteousness belong to him. And Jesus tells us again today, this is my birthright. This is my crown. And I share it with you. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Amen.